We've been studying the book of Daniel for the last couple of weeks. If you just kind of are new to this or, or haven't maybe been here or whatever, just know that Daniel's written during a time of, it's called the time of exile. God's people had been promised a land and God placed them in this land and they, it was a land flowing with milk and honey, a good land. Uh, it was a great blessing that God had done that, but here's what happened. The people continued to rebel against God and ultimately because of their rebellion, they're sent out of their land. God was working in this. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon at the time. He overtook Jerusalem and the first time that he visited, he took some men out. It was the young men uh, like Daniel who were prominent men in, in that culture and he pulled them out and, and he carried them to Babylon. They spent three years there training under the Babylonian kind of uh, in, in that world and learning the language and learning the customs and the history and all those things. And they were to be used in the king's court. Uh, it just That's kind of what we needed to know to get started. In chapter 1, though, Daniel and his friends, when they start this process, they, they knew they shouldn't eat the, the food that the king was giving, the wine that he was giving to drink. And so they ask uh, for something different, for like vegetables and water, because it, we don't really know all the details behind that. But we just know that it would have been a rebellion against God for them to eat those certain foods and so uh, God gave them favor and they grew in wisdom and ended up really being very prominent in Babylon. Uh, it's kind of what we see. And so we see them really in their faithfulness. Uh, God is faithful to them and he blesses them and strengthens them. Uh, in the second chapter, uh, the king had a dream. And that's kind of what we looked at last week. He has this dream of this, this big statue and he doesn't really know anything about it. And so he asked the wise men to give him both the dream and then its interpretation. So he would know for sure what was going on. And ultimately, um, no one would know. And so he, no one knew. All the wise men didn't know. So the king says, well, I'm going to kill everybody. Daniel finds out about it. And he says, give me some time. He asks his friends to pray. And God gives him a revelation. And he understands uh, what the, the dream was and its interpretation. He took it to the king. And the king uh, praised God for what he had done and, and, and placed Daniel in high authority. And Daniel asked his friends to be kind of placed there too. And they're all there. And so we kind of see these pictures of God delivering his people, giving them favor, giving them understanding, all of that going on. Today is chapter 3. And chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, again the king of Babylon, he decides he's going to build uh, this, this great image that is, is it's a huge thing made of complete gold. And so he's going to build this and he makes it. And uh, what you find out is uh, uh, after he makes it, uh, he asks everybody to show up. Everybody that's really powerful in the empire, y'all show up. And I'm going to say uh, all the peoples of the earth are to bow down to this image. Well, Daniel, and it really isn't, he's not shown in here, but his three friends, the Jewish guys that also were trained with him and come alongside him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they do not bow down to the idol. And ultimately, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, fine, I'm going to throw you in a fiery furnace for it. And, and they are thrown in there, and God preserves their life, and so they're called back out. And Nebuchadnezzar says, surely your God is the God of all gods and all these things. And so it's this picture, though, overwhelming kind of picture of God delivering his people as they, are, they follow him in obedience and they submit their lives to him. And so that's just a recurring theme that we see God's delivering power or his sovereignty over all of human history, over all things that are going on. And he delivers his people now. Again, we also see them saying, listen, I will not follow or serve those gods of the world. They will not turn their lives to them. 
They are to be they are obedient no matter what the consequences. So from a Godward perspective, he's sovereign and he's ruling over and preserving his people from man's kind of picture here. You would say these men are faithful not to follow after or serve the gods of this world. Now, the Bible says that we too are in exile. We are strangers and aliens in this world. We, we are not. This is not our home. And it makes it very clear that this is not our home. And so with the results of that, we would say in this world, in, in this kind of hostile world that's hostile towards God, we know that. We saw Jesus. He came on this earth and people hated Him. In this hostile world, then we are going to feel the pressures of this life to conform to its ways and to submit to its rule. And so I think it's very important that we see that and we understand that we're going to find ourselves among those who go against God's ways. They're lying, cheating, stealing, or prevalent in this world. There are people that put their work, their play, their rest, their families above God. And, and really, what we have to know is all of those things, if we're not careful, we will place some things as, as idols in our eyes, things that are more important than God. And, and we have to be a very understanding of that and see that and say, listen, we will not bow down to this world's ways and treasure the things of this age above God. We must reject attractive idol, idols of this age. And it can be good things, it can be bad things, all kinds of things can draw us in. I was thinking about this morning uh, when William got up. He all, he, Anna says he always says, Daddy. That's the first thing he says. And, uh, of course, that makes me like, oh, you know, oh, he loves his daddy. And then, uh, uh, and, and so she starts asking him questions like, who's your favorite person in the world? And he says, Daddy. And he, she says, like, who's the worst husband in the world? Daddy. You know, and he, like, made all these lists, like, who's the... the greatest you know lion thief of the world daddy you know everything's daddy and uh, I was thinking about though in his mind like he is so um he really does like treasure time with his daddy I mean he and he watches his daddy and he's looking to see what his daddy loves and really every time I leave the house right now it's like shoot ducks but anyway he's always like but he he's saying like what is daddy like I like it what does daddy wear I want to wear it and I just think for us in our, in, our, in our world, as we think about around, as we're ministering to each other and in our families, we have to say, like, what, what does he think, what is he going to think daddy loves most? What does he think daddy treasures most? What's the most important thing to daddy? Because I want to follow daddy. I want to see how, and I, and I would just say, man, I hope we come away from here that we would be kind, the kind of people that would say, put God first in our families. And this church family and those around us would say, those people there, they are so faithful to God that they would reject all the idols of this age and serve Him only. And I hope that we'll be that kind of model. And you may say, well, I'm, I don't really, I'm not supposed to be that. Yes, you, Jared, that's so and so. God has called Christians to model the life lived most to His glory and our good. And that means that we'll reject, the, like I said, the idols of this age and follow God above everything. So let's look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. 
as you start there, just say, we just understand that a cubit was 18 inches. So this, this, this thing that he built, this image was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. It was massive. I'm not sure, I'm not good with distances, but I would say, you know, somewhere in here, this is maybe like 90 feet, 100 feet, I'm not sure. It may be a little longer, we think. Maybe. We'll see. Bobby calculated. No. But it's, it's a huge thing. And he sets it up, and we're looking at this in this plane. And really, if you were to kind of go back and look at this plane, what you would find out was that was where Babel was built. It's another thing. Both of these things are kind of centered around the pride of humanity. It was something that cost him greatly, but it was for his own glory and for the glory of his kingdom and his name. And so he builds this great thing. You know, it's very important to understand also, I think, to understand last week when we looked at that chapter and we looked at this image, he has this dream in the night, this vision of this big image, and he asked about it. And it had a golden head and silver kind of arms and then bronze kind of middle and then clay and iron at the bottom. Now here's the thing. He didn't build that one. He built the idea in his mind, I think, was not that there's going to be these kingdoms that come, but I want my kingdom to last forever. I'm going to try to bypass what God really put in motion. God said, hey, your kingdom has a time and it's going to pass away. And he's saying, no, it won't. He's treasuring really his kingdom and he's saying, look, I'm going to forget God, his revelation and his rule over the world, and I'm going to reinterpret history. I'm going to try to change history. And build something for myself and keep my kingdom forever. Even though God has said this is the way it is. I think for Christians, we have to ask that question. God has said to us in His Word, these are the ways that you're to walk and these are the plans I have for you. And He's laid those things out very clearly that we would gather with God's people, that we would worship Him, that we would serve Him, that we would live for Him, that we would love our families, that we would love our wives, that we would submit to our husbands. He's listed out so many things. And you and I, I just want to say, If we're not careful over time, we'll try to set those things aside and we'll say, no, you know, I'd rather live my life this way. So I'm going to put this over here and I'm going to redesign the way the world ought to be. And it's going to be crafted in my image and it's going to be for my glory and it's going to be for my happiness. And I don't really care what God says because what he says doesn't look like what I have planned for me. And every time we sin, that's kind of what we're doing. Because we're in our pride, we're, we're kind of stumbling over all these things and treasuring the wrong stuff. And God is laying that out. He's already told Nebuchadnezzar, here's the future. And He says, I want to change the future. I want to change your plans. I want to turn away from those. Verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefix, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to dedicate the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Notice that word, had set up. Notice how many times it's going to be mentioned here. Then the satraps, <clears throat> the prefix, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image of the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image of Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
and heard that and the herald proclaimed aloud you are commanded o peoples nations and languages that when you hear the sound of the horn the pipe the lyre uh, or lyre the trigon the harp the bagpipe and every kind of music you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king nebuchadnezzar had set up and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace therefore as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All this kind of centered around what Nebuchadnezzar has done. It's, kind of almost like a, it's almost like in light of what the story does, it's like the foolishness of Nebuchadnezzar for doing this thing. He gathers all the leaders of, the, of his kingdom. Now here's the thing. That is a massive kingdom. The most powerful kingdom of the earth. He draws everybody together. He summons them to himself and to come and bow down before his image. It's really aligning all these, these king, everybody in the kingdom to, to see his splendor and the glory of his kingdom. To submit to it. To, to be under its rule. To seek after its ways. You know, a, a, an idol or an image like this is it was like a representative of a god or gods. It's, it's, a, it's, it's something that, that people would put there to kind of represent God. It, it may even have this element to where it, would, it almost kind of resembles Him. Like His kingdom. His glory. And so there's kind of that element like that. I was thinking of the movie Young Guns. In Billy the Kid, uh, there's a point where uh, Doc says to him, stop believing the newspapers. You are not a God. And he says, why don't you pull the trigger and find out? Kind of got to that place where, again, Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he is greater and more powerful and more wonderful than anybody else there. And so he, he's kind of, again, this worship of this image is also tied to the worship of him. This idol is crafted by human hands. It's designed in a way by man man has built it it's a human invention here so god all the time throughout scripture he condemns idolatry and that's again what we would see here god would condemn the service of these things brought really like a representation of false gods a representation of, of maybe nebuchadnezzar being god all this kind of stuff god always condemned that because he is the one and only true god now you think about our world. Have you ever seen somebody treasure something that they've created with their hands? Somebody's house could be their treasure or their idol or their image, the standard by which uh, they want to show people their glory and their splendor. Their business could be something that they love to glory in. They love people to see. They love to, to develop and grow because they want their own fame, their own glory. We meet somebody, maybe their cars are that way, and they just, boy, they're just so precious to them, and they treasure it and love it and keep it. There's just the list goes on of things that we would say crafted by human hands, made by us for our glory, our splendor, our joy, our, our amazement and wonder. All these things. And you see people doing this. Sometimes you will rob God for it by spending your money, time, and talents on it rather than Him. It's an example of that. 
It's taking something that has been really given to us by God, crafting it into some way, and so that we kind of find some kind of joy and hope and satisfaction and all that in it and making it above everything in our lives. I think we do struggle with idolatry. It could be a long list of stuff. I was asking um, Skip and my dad on Friday morning, we had breakfast kind of talking about this, and I was like, what do you think the idols of this age are? And they were like, how much room do you have? How much paper do we have? You could write it down. The list goes on and on and on. John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. They produce those things over and over. And depending on the day, you might say, this is what this person's bowing down to. And tomorrow it might be something else. It, it, it could be a good thing that we've turned into some, to God. To something we hope in most, more than anything. You know what sin is? If you're, I was thinking about this this week. Sin is the opposite of worship. And when we sin, we have feared, trusted in, hoped in, and found joy in something other than God. We need to learn to identify the idols of our heart. So that's just something I think you need to see because that's what's happening. There, he's putting up this thing and says, everyone bow down, everyone honor, everyone treasure, everyone love this. Put this as preeminent in your life. I want everyone to do that. Bow down to it, serve it, live for it, hope in it, find comfort in it. Know and believe in my kingdom. It's going to be there for you forever and for your family. But notice what happens. In verses 8-15, through 15, these Jews are accused of not bowing down, and they did not. In this point, there's these guys that say, these Chaldeans, which is really just another way of saying these Babylonians, kind of the ones from around there. They, had been, uh, they probably hated the Jews, one, because these guys came in to be their servants, and they'd already been escalated to a place of high power. And so they, they hated them, and they were always looking for ways to try to go after them, to get them. And so what happens is, <clears throat> when they see that they didn't bow down, they're going to bring this up to Nebuchadnezzar. These men were probably honest and not crooked. You couldn't really find anything but to say that they only worship their God and no one else. So Nebuchadnezzar brings them forward and says, is this true? And he says, I'm going to give you a second chance, man, if you'll just bow down. Well, let's somebody, you know, start the music back up and y'all bow down and worship this image or I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. So what happens is, notice in verse 15, now if you're ready, when you hear this sound, um, do this, fall down and worship. Look, it goes on, it says, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast in the fiery furnace. And notice what happens. And who is the God who will deliver you from out of my hands? Very important there. Who could ever, you know, he's just kind of set himself as, up as the preeminent one. Who could deliver you out of my hands? Verses 16 through 20, which is central, this whole text. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. 
And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. They say to, 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 to the king, listen, we've already made up our minds. We will not serve and worship your gods. We will not bow down to this image. And here's what they say, and this is very important. Our God is able to deliver us. He is able to deliver us. And we believe that He will deliver us. But if He doesn't, we will still not bow down to the image. You know, throughout history, sometimes God delivers His people from physical harm, and sometimes He doesn't. There have been many martyrs for the Christian faith. They've died for standing up for Christ. Sometimes He rescues again. Sometimes He doesn't. But ultimately, Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is that? May you fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So I think it's just important that we see this. Anytime, and this is very important to understand, anytime that someone tries to, there's some things that are very clear. We should not do this. We should not live in this way. But anytime someone at school, someone, it may be a government official, someone like that you're, you know, you could make a list, even a parent that tries to make your ch- a child go away from God, to turn away from God and His ways, any kind of person in authority that is trying to press you away from being obedient to God, you can't do it. It's not, it's not saying that they may give somebody the freedom to do whatever they want. We're saying when someone is trying to push you to be disobedient to the teachings of the Bible, you're not to follow that. Period. Ever. And these men, you show, they will not bow to the world's demands to rebel against God. That means anybody who's in authority anywhere over you. That could be your boss. That could be, again, like a government official. That could be a teacher. There's a long list of people that could try to move you away from the truth of God's Word, and you're not to do it. These men could have sat there and rationalized and said, well, I might have a greater impact for God if I was alive rather than dead. I'll bow a little bit today. Everything will be okay. We'll forget about it later. They did not do that. They, they resolved to bow, not bow the knee to these false idols. Now, what were the things that held them? This is very important. If you are going to stand for God in your family, in your work, in your church, in every aspect of life, if you are going to stand for God, what must you know? One, they knew that God was sovereign. They knew He was the most powerful God. They knew He reigned and ruled over everything. Secondly, they knew the things that were against God. They knew the Scriptures. And you and I, we have to know, what does God want? What does He want? How does He want me to live? What has He called me to? They knew the Scriptures. And then the third thing is, they were willing to die for their convictions. They were willing to give themselves over to whatever trouble that they might face because they were convinced that there was a God, He was their God, He reigned and ruled, and He had a way that they wanted them to live. They knew Him. As Daniel 11.32 says, those who know their God will be strong and they will stand and do great things. 
And as you keep moving in verse 21, just notice here, they are cast into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So this thing, this is shocking. They go into the furnace, those three, and they look down, and Nebuchadnezzar looks down and says, there's one, a fourth one there. Like the, like the son of the gods. Now, some people would say this is just an angel, and, and, it, and it may be an angel. Others would say there, throughout Scripture, there are times where the, the pre-incarnate Christ, meaning before Jesus came, that, he would, that God would appear, and He would appear in a way that was visible and understandable. <clears throat> and this is what I believe is going on here. The Scripture says about, this, about God in the midst of our trials, Isaiah 41 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 43 says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I, the Lord your God, am the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's under, it's something you see here. They're trusting in God to save them. And He meets them in the fire. He meets them in the darkest of moments. He is there with them. They are not left alone. Our God is with us. There is nothing that you could face in this life that God is not with you. If you are His child, His presence is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And that is so important to know. And so in the, when you are faced with a trial like this, or even a small one, when you are faced with maybe jumping into treasuring something of this age more than Him, and hoping in it, and loving it, and pursuing it and with all of yourself and all of your might, you need to stop and say, why don't I treasure God? Why don't I hope in Him? And why don't I run with Him? Even if it costs me everything, I should pursue God. He's the chief treasure. He is my Savior and He is my hope. Notice in verses 26 through 28, Nebuchadnezzar calls them out. He's looking down there and going, holy cow, what's going on here? And he says, come out of there. He calls them the servants in 26 of the Most High God. He believes that He is over all things. The chief God. The One who reigns over all. He's the Most High. He is above everything. Verse 27, And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not. <clears throat> I'm sorry. <clears throat> And they saw that the fire had not 
burn them. And it had no power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nothing happened. They went into the fire ready to die. And nothing happened to them. They came out not even smelling like smoke. I mean, you can't sit by a little campfire and not smell like smoke. They didn't even smell like smoke. I mean, God was with them. He protected them. He preserved their life in the midst of the fire. They hoped in Him and He was there on their behalf and defended them and fought for them and protected them. And Nebuchadnezzar ends up blessing their God. He praises their God as the only God. He blesses the God who delivered them. He made a decree and says, if anybody speaks against their God, they'll be torn from limb to limb. All this is going on here and we see the beauty of this where God's with His people in their exile, in their trouble, in the strife of this age, in the things where we have all these battles and mixed up priorities and we struggle sometimes with saying, I'm going to stand with God. And He is there with His people when they do. Sometimes I think we say, man, if I really hold on to God's way, if I really pursue the way that God has for me, it's not going to look good in this life. It's not going to be easy in this life. If I make this deal in the way God would have me make it, it could be troublesome for me. If I'm honest, it could be trouble. And He is there trusting God in the midst of this. So I think you get a couple of things out of here today. You can just put these down. One, God delivers. He delivers. He delivers His people who put their faith in Him. We should not fear all the gods of this age. We should not love them, hope in them, treasure them. God delivers us. He is our Savior. He's the one who rescues. He's the one we can hope in. He is the one when we pass through the fires of judgment that He is there. Actually, the Bible tells us about Jesus that He's already saved us. That's so important. That we don't go through the judgment, the fires, the struggle, the storm of God's wrath. We don't go through that. Christ did that for us. And being united to Him, we get to be preserved from the storm of His judgment. We can hope in Him. The second thing I'd say is we're not to worship the false gods of this age, but should reject them even if the consequences mean death. You know, one of the things that's hard about here, and it's something you got to. My dad reminded me of this this week, and he says this often. It always kind of sticks in my mind, but it was when um, we had a friend from India, and he, he faced a lot of trouble when he became a believer. His father pulled a gun on him, and he just couldn't pull the trigger. His dad was going to kill him for following Christ. And throughout his life, he's faced a lot of trials. He's been beaten almost to death, and a lot of different things that have gone on. And he said, You know what? It's easier in India. When he said, pray for India one time, he said, but don't pray that the persecution will go away. Pray that it will stay the way it is because it has a way of helping us see the struggle. He said one of the things about living here as he's been in the West a couple of times now is he said it's hard to know your enemy. It's so much more subtle. You don't always see it. You can't always see the... No one's saying, putting a gun to your head and saying, bow down to an idol. There aren't temples in Texarkana made up for a bunch of little idols and you just say, hey, I stayed away from that this week. I'm good. The idols here are different. 
there, there's some level of them that just it's hard again to read. I, I really did have found and I may, maybe mentioned this before to you that Tim Keller kind of explaining like four major heart idols helped me kind of get this a little bit better. And so I just kind of mention those to you this morning. One is comfort. The second one is control. The other one is power. And the last one is acceptance. Comfort, control, power, and acceptance. He says these are the major heart idols that we have. These are the things that you might very quickly bow down to. One thing, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, these young men that we're studying today, they were great leaders in Babylon. They probably had a very comfortable life. They had all the food they would want. Their house was probably nice. They probably had someone to mow their yard. Somebody cleaned their clothes and ironed them, which is, you know, it's awesome. They like that kind of stuff. They, they probably didn't have to make their own meals. They may have hunted in the best places in Babylon. They had all the comforts of life. Think, how could you want anymore? What else could a man want? They were comfortable. Second, like from a control standpoint, they probably got the ordered life. That's the deal. The more you have, more ability you have to kind of control things. Sometimes you say, I can keep myself almost bulletproof from any trouble in this life. Because I've got it all under control. I can order things well. They, the issue of power for them. They could fire somebody when they wanted to. They could throw somebody away. Just do what, They might even have them killed if they wanted to. They were very powerful men. People around them probably showed them respect. They would walk into a room. They were important. People listened to them. They certainly had enemies, but they were very powerful men. People probably feared them and listened to them. Fourth thing you might say about acceptance. The most powerful king on the earth for the most part before this event listened to them. Respected them. Sought their attention. Wanted to know what they had to say. All of those things, those four things, comfort, control, power, and acceptance, these are the kind of things that we say, hey, if these things are under control, if I have control of my life, if I have power in my life, if I have whatever it is, the comforts of this life, if I'm accepted by others in this life, all these things, if, if I have those, what else could I want? And so if I have them, then I'll just hold on to those and forget God. If I can enjoy life and go have fun and do what I want and have a good job and the money to buy what I want, what else do I want in this life? And so they're faced with that reality. Will you serve God? Even though you have money, influence, and fun stuff to do, will you put God first? And I think for your children, when you're thinking about your kids, we are, we've got to think this way. We have to say, I want you to see and understand that Dad loves God. And if everything else, it cost him everything, he'll serve God. Dad writes a check every week to the church because he loves God. And Dad's not going to buy you everything you want because what's most important to him is God. And Dad spends his time investing in people because instead of just investing and building his own dream, he loves God. And there you walk down the list. He loves God. He's pursuing God. Dad will let other people hate him, mistreat him, think he's a fool because he loves God. These men are saying, whatever it costs me, I will serve Him. Because I believe He is the chief treasure. He is greater than all. He is my life. He is the one I want to serve. 
And I would rather be find acceptance in Him, live under His power, submit to His control, and experience the comfort that even if this life is all a loss, that I will spend eternity with Him. Because He is my joy. He is my hope. He is my satisfaction. He's what I treasure. And it's a fool. Only a fool would gobble up this age bow down to the gods of this age, knowing that those things are crumbling. Knowing that the world is passing away in all of its lust. Knowing that the One who does the will of God abides forever. Knowing that the stone Christ His kingdom will crush all the kingdoms of this age. Knowing that everything you hope in in this world to find satisfaction is passing away and Christ's kingdom is coming in. And when it comes in, those who have submitted to Him, those who have aligned themselves with Him will not be saying, oh, I wish the mountains would fall on me and kill me. They will be saying, I long to this for this day. I'm hoping in Christ. And He will receive them into His Kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So I think for us today, we have to say, listen, our God is sovereign. He reigns over the universe. He is about saving us. And that all the promises of this world for your children, for you to find joy and satisfaction and wholeness and completeness and happiness and all those promises are but they're almost like what one person says they're mirages mirages and what happens is with a mirage you run and you run and run and you get down there and you say oh there's going to be water and you try to get you a little drink and there's nothing there and so you look up and say there's another mirage and I run over and I think I'm going to get a drink and the reality is there's nothing there and Christ is the only one where the mirage becomes what a pool something that will satisfy my heart forever so if you're someone here today and you all of us have this where your people are looking to you and they're watching you and you as a young man or woman are not living for the king of the universe and not abandoning this age and storing up treasure on this earth you are in a place of great Great danger. And I pray that you'll turn to the King and whatever it costs, you'll follow Him. It will be worth it. It will be worth it a million times, a million times, a million times over. It will be worth it. Paul said that this light and momentary trouble has nothing to compare to the glory that will be revealed when Christ returns. Your family, I just want to say to men here before we go, your family is watching you. They're watching you. And what you treasure most. And what you're saying, listen, here's where we give our time and resources and talents. They're watching you. I encourage you to set for them the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would help us see more clearly what You have for us. God, I just pray that all of us here 
would be seriously considering seriously considering what we devote ourselves to. And Lord, I just pray again for the men. I of all men know how easily I can get focused on things that have very little eternal significance. And Lord, we know that we do have to work and we're going to do some things, fun things, and we've got to rest. And there's all those things that we do in this life that are not bad things. We just pray that they would be things that ultimately, that in all that we do, we'd want to glorify You. We would love You. We would worship You. We would center our family around worshiping You and knowing You. And again, I just pray for those here who are in leadership. They would set the pattern of obedience to God no matter the cost so that we can see that He is the One who saves us. And He is our hope. In Christ's name, Amen.